The talk is about giving birth to loving-kindness or coming home to loving-kindness within yourself. Loving-kindness is about our relationship, our ideal relationship with ourselves, with other human beings, and with all beings who we share the planet with. And as I said last night, there's different kinds of love that we're used to um, describing life, love as. You know, so there can be a kind of love that includes a nostalgia or a sentimentality. There can be a love that's very erotic or sensual. You know, there can be a love um, that has a missing element to it or just a pure longing or neediness to it. You know, there's many subtleties to when we use the word love and what we mean by it. And it's very important to distinguish all the kind of maybe casual ways that we use the word love uh, from what the Buddha taught in this case. And this isn't to uh, negate or minimize the other kinds of love that we experience, but we could probably categorize all those kinds of love as a kind of dependent love in some way or another. Uh, And when we talk about a kind of love that we have a, a deeper need for, all beings wanting to awaken to this deeper love, this is what the Buddha was teaching as loving kindness. And it, it's the best description is really that it's unconditional. It's not, I'll love you if, or we don't receive that kind of love where we'll feel loved if, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, just, just in terms of a day of practice, we can start to see how many times in our relationship to s- ourself that we don't love ourselves if we're sleepy. You know, how much we reject ourselves just if there's low energy. Uh, it's, you know, it's extraordinary how hard we can be on ourselves. So you'll start to see how you will love yourself when you're not sleepy. And that's not loving kindness. Now, it's not to, to say that when you feel good that and you're not sleepy and you feel clear that that's not a great experience. But if we're attached to it, especially in terms of our sense of identity and our judgment about ourselves, we'll see that we suffer because it's, it's not <laughs> an unconditional love. So in fact, the Buddha described that this experience of unconditional love is quite rare in this world and that it does take a certain amount of cultivation uh, and that we can do it. This winter, um, my niece by marriage, um, who I'm quite close to, uh, was pregnant and was supposed to deliver her baby February 22nd. But in early December, she started going into labor, uh, and she had to go to the hospital and have a long, long time in the hospital, just staying still, bed rest. And then they finally let her home 
when they felt like even if she, if the baby came early, it would be okay. But she still had to do bed rest at home. So it was two and a half months of not moving, and um, she really was okay through it. You know, she she just, even though it could be hard, she she made it through that part, and I was quite impressed. And I was trying to do a self-retreat in January, so I was kind of rooting for the baby coming on time myself. Uh, and then at a certain point, when she was told that it was okay, the baby could come, she started to get impatient. And I was saying, you know, it's okay. You know, he doesn't want to come. <laughs> you know, it wasn't even like time for him to come. But three weeks before he was supposed to come, she started to get impatient. Uh, so, you know. They called me one night at one in the morning, and it was time for the baby to come. Um, And things were going along, and if anyone's been at a birth, you know, often at a certain point, which happened to her, uh, you know, the pain, the really hard pain started. And she looked at me, and she said, I can't do this. Like I was supposed to do something about it, you know. <laughs> and I said, "Well, <laughs> I don't know about this." And she said, "No, you don't understand. You know, we're not. I'm not doing this. I'm leaving." And I said, "I, I really don't think we can <laughs> turn this around here." Um, and it was the first time she hit that place that I can't do it because she was really afraid. You know, so I could do the best I could to say, I'll be here with you. You know, I held her hand till my hand almost broke. You know, we went through it. But really, she had to do it. You know, I could could connect with her. I could encourage her. I could inspire her. But I wasn't the one going through that pain. You know, I could share as much as I could. But that's the way it was. And she hit another place like that when the baby's head started to come out. And it was coming out just gradually and slowly. And she was trying to do a natural birth, and she kept thinking she was doing something wrong, that it was taking so long. And I was like, no, 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 you know, you don't want this thing to come out (laughs) this fast. It's like stretching you gradually. It's going to rip you if it comes out too fast. Um, And do we get impatient with our own birth process of loving kindness? I mean, today, how many times would you want to have experienced the feeling more? And in the next few days, you might feel like you're in this process of labor, of giving birth. And it's okay if sometimes it's difficult. It's okay sometimes if you feel like, I can't do this. Um, And you just kind of stay with it and go through it. And you don't want to rip open so fast that it's, it's too too fast for you to actually go through that process. So I'd like to talk about how the loving-kindness practice is a form of protection for us in this process. You know, like when I was able to connect with her and just hold her hand, that sense of metta gave her the courage to go through the pain. And that's, that's something you can do for yourself here at the retreat, that when you can connect to yourself with reassurance, that's a lot. When you can connect yourself with yourself with patience, all of this is a form of loving-kindness. 
sometimes we have this idea that we're going to be sitting there blissed out in interconnectedness when that moment when you're patient is actually cultivating a lot of loving-kindness. And of course at the birth that I was at this um, winter, you know, one just gets that sense of that immediacy of wishing well, a newborn, how easy it is, how natural it is. And when we're born, (laughs) you know, we often mistake reality as something that we're separate from. You know, when that old umbilical cord is cut, uh, we're faced with this spiritual journey of understanding how we develop a sense of individualness, a separate self, and then how that becomes a prison for us. So most of us come to a retreat often having been quite busy and stressed, and in that process of being busy, we tend to be disconnected from ourself and others. We're, we're disconnected from the truth of um, connection. Uh, so when we take the time to temporarily remove ourselves from the world, you know, initially we might feel like we're giving up a lot, like we might be giving up our email or our phone conversations or, you know, whatever it is that you might have missed today. I mean, it might have been something like sitting at home eating what you rather have eaten rather than what we had. Um, but however it is for you, there, there's usually these moments of nostalgia uh, for what we might have given up. Uh, But the retreat is about opening ourselves, making ourselves available for something deeper, that the conditions in our normal life are often not ripe for that. So it's not that I could say that, yes, you're going to have this particular experience, as much to encourage you to keep going with this process so that you remain open to what's unexpected. And that's really more what this is about. You know, that something is going on on a deep level. That's the truth. And we're not changing life in any way. It's more that you're making space for that unconditional love to appear to you, not, not, as Carol said, make it happen. And often the experience of a kind of profound loneliness will come on the first few days of retreat because we are removing ourselves from our community of friends or family or loved ones. And this, if you can, if you can make space in your heart for that loneliness, it's really important, especially on a loving kindness retreat. It's almost like I would say, give us more and more loneliness. Because that's what really um, helps motivate us to question what that is. And how it happens. And it's, it's really why we're here. So if we can 
make space for uh, a, a deeper and deeper loneliness, it often helps us to, um, when we go through it, dissolve the sense of separation. We're mo- it's like the birth process. It cracks us open to, to the truth of interconnectedness. So in terms of loving-kindness as a protection, the Buddha taught loving-kindness as a guardian meditation. And as when you learn this practice, it's really a practice that you can do in your daily life, you know, before any sittings or in any time where you feel like calling in this protection. It's quite a tool. You know, I don't think you could ever regret bringing it into your life just with that motivation as protection. And one aspect of this as a protection is, is that it helps us to become more concentrated. Concentration allows the attention to rest. And that rest is deeply strengthening. And we tend to resist that rest. It's like we like, we're so familiar with the mind that's busy and the mind that's identified and the mind that is a separate self that we need to go, be willing to go through that kind of loneliness to, to get to a kind of stillness, which is healing. So when we say the words, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, one of the understandings of inner harm are being oppressed by the hindrances. It, it doesn't mean that the hindrances don't come up, meaning sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, not wanting what's happening or wanting something else to be happening, aversion and attachment. Uh, but in a moment of concentration, we're not oppressed by those. We're not identified with those. And that is the rest. And that stillness, again, is, is very deeply healing. And, uh, and this kind of a retreat is meant to um, help us strengthen that rest, strengthen that healing. So sometimes it can feel like when I'm talking about this, the first day of retreat, it can seem like a bit of a bad joke because we're saying all these phrases and it doesn't seem still or, or quiet at all. Uh, but I'd like to describe how that uh, putting, being perfectly put together, that's how it's described in the text. Concentration is being perfectly put together. Uh, that stillness is what allows us to face the world as it is. It's what allows us to really be mindful and face the, the great joys and sorrows of life or to face the pain and pleasure. Uh, so concentration practice is kind of like giving yourself a boost. You know, it would be like hooking your, you know, yourself up to battery cables. You know, when your car needs a boost and you hook it up to another car and you get the, the juice and the battery. Um, even though it might seem like you're a bit sluggish, you're actually kind of cranking up. You know, I, I think of the first few days of a metta retreat, like if you know those old Model T cars, you're kind of cranking up. Uh, and it can seem a little 
uncomfortable at first if you don't understand what we're doing. So in this practice, there's, there's four aspects that are coming together, and mostly because there's these imbalances of energy, it's hard to feel like we're really perfectly put together, but trust that you're getting pieces. So as Carol said this morning, just to be able to say a phrase, may I be happy and peaceful, to be able to say that takes a certain amount of energy and concentration. And you know, you've had the experience today that you can't. You know, it's like it just doesn't come. Uh, and that's not, it's just the conditions aren't ripe for that. But if there's enough energy and concentration and intention, you can say the phrase to yourself or for someone else. Um, but that doesn't mean that there might be enough concentration for you to really mean it, meaning that you understand what you're saying. You know, and it can be really, f I think, funny, you know, to check in sometimes and be saying, you know, may I be happy <laughs> and peaceful of heart. And you know, you might as well be saying, oh, the red rooster is, you know, cawing away, or, you know, there's not enough of, enough concentration or energy to really understand what we're saying. But again, try to just go through these places, because it's very different to even be trying to say, may, may you be happy and peaceful, to the normal chatter going through the mind. And this builds your concentration and helps us in life with anything we need to be focused with. And so if we can be able to say a phrase, and then you'll feel sometimes that you're going to start being able to understand the words, and then it takes being able to connect that with something, like ourself or another. And when you actually have those three come together, you're going to feel immersed. You know, so you'll feel different. You will be protected from the hindrances for a while. Um, and it feels wonderful. And then the fourth thing that can happen is that you can have the experience of loving-kindness. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen, you know, for quite a while in this practice. And it, it's, it's the biggest obstacle in this practice is to judge it. Uh, because a lot is happening, like I said, unseen, um, that we don't understand, uh, that will come together for us, and you're just ripening these different factors. When it does come together, it'll feel quieter. You know, there'll be kind of a more of a quieter happiness. Sometimes it'll feel like you don't need to say the phrases. Uh, and that's fine. You, you'll feel like the duality breaks down. We call it breaking the barriers. You'll break the barrier between yourself and yourself or yourself and another. And the experience of that means that you're not struggling with feeling like you're sending it to yourself or receiving it. The giver and receiver become one. Or with another and another, the sense of sending it um, will become like it, the person is, or being is your own heart. And you'll just, you'll feel this deep interconnectedness. Um, it might last a second, if it lasts longer, you let the phrases go for a while. But if you let them go too long, sometimes the energy goes down. So this is, it's all an art to learn how to do this. Um, and it can be fun, <laughs> actually, at times.
that's the fun part about it. It's, you know, it's like, um, it feels wonderful when we break down the barrier with ourself and another. And then, as I mentioned earlier today, when you feel like you're getting tight, um, too tight, it's really important to just relax, feel the, the wind on your face, or feel your body, feel the breath, notice sounds. Just do some mindfulness for a while. Um, and then when you feel like you're not <laughs> um, so tight to begin again, So when we do have a sense of being perfectly put together and there's less of a sense of duality, there's an understanding that comes that we aren't separate, and that's the greatest protection. Understanding is the best protection. You know, so, so please understand that this isn't, isn't just um, being free from the hindrances, but it will also lead us to a deeper place of understanding. Another way that um, this practice protects us is that it softens resistance. And another way that you could phrase that is that it um, brings about more acceptance of how things are. It allows us to accept painful feelings and pleasurable feelings, and let's, we can allow them come and go. In a way, I have found that this practice allows me to be more honest about my experience. Because if I know that I won't disconnect from myself or abandon myself, when something difficult arises, like even if it's loneliness or fear, um, that if I can trust myself not to disconnect, um, you can see the, how that acceptance is an enormous protection. Uh, and sometimes, if you're new to this practice, it can be confusing about when to experience an emotion and when not to. Of course, we will encourage you at the beginning and, and um, the traditional instruction is that if you can keep the metta going, you ignore a painful feeling in the knee, or experience in the knee, or you ignore really going with the sound of the bird, or you ignore whatever is happening, and you still stay focused on the phrases and the, um, the person you're doing or the being you're doing. Uh, but if you can't, then the instruction is to go to what's easy. So if you were with yourself and some other being was easier, you'd go to what's easy. You see, if you're doing benefactor and yourself was easy, you'd go to yourself. And then if you can't keep it going, and this is, we're not trying to be um, <laughs> ruthless repressors here. It's more that we're trying to encourage this strength of concentration and rest from being oppressed by these things. But at a certain point, if you feel like you need to attend to something that's happening, certainly that's appropriate at a certain point in time. And you include that experience with mindfulness and hopefully with some metta. 
And then, you know, when you, you let that experience come and go by itself, you go back to the metta. This is an art to learn in itself, because when you have more energy and concentration, this will be more easy to do. And when you have less energy and concentration, you're going to have to be opening up more to things. And sometimes it's irritating uh, to be doing a concentration practice, because if you're used to doing mindfulness practice and and an unpleasant sound comes, usually at least we're teaching you to go with it, right? But here we're saying, you know, <laughs> keep saying, may I be <laughs> happy, and you're getting irritated. So it can feel like a conflict or struggle. Try not to make too big a deal of it. Sometimes it's just really choiceless. You have to attend to the aversion because you, the metta just stops. You attend to it and then come back when you can. My first um, metta retreat, actually, I did in a place in Australia at a convent. Uh, And I was in a room um, that was near where this new priest used to come visit. Uh, And he had a dog named Fritz. (laughs) Fritz. And he was training Fritz. Um, Fritz was a very naughty dog, apparently. I was in my room. I never really saw Fritz. I'm glad I never saw Fritz, because most of the time I really wanted to strangle Fritz, because Fritz was outside my door barking and barking and barking, and then this man would go, Fritz, Fritz, you know, and it would just be all day like, Fritz, (laughs) Fritz. And I'm trying to go, may I be happy, may you be happy. <laughs> and all I wanted to go was, shut up, Fritz, you know, <laughs> let me practice, you know. And, you know, let me, <laughs> let me hang out in this blissful state. Uh, and I had a teacher at the time who um, I went in to do my report. And I didn't, st- I had, had two teachers for uh, like maybe two days, and then I was switched to just one. Uh, but this one teacher who was sort of more light and easy, uh, I told him about this experience, and he said something like, um, would you be able to send metta to somebody who came in and hit you over the head today? And I was like, no, I can't even stand Fritz, you know. (laughs) And he said, keep practicing. So luckily, we don't have Fritz at this <laughs> retreat. Um, <laughs> but we have plenty of almost Fritzes. You know, there'll be plenty of things that will feel like they're really uh, ruining your metta practice. It could be a pain in the knee. It could be um, an experience of fear. It could be an experience of wanting. Whatever is your Fritz, uh, at a certain point, you'll have to include the experience. And that's okay. You include it, and then you start again with a metta. Ultimately, you know, we're breaking down the barriers. And so we start off with this form of ourself, then benefactor, then dear friend, neutral, difficult, all beings. And ultimately, you know, one would learn to send metta to Fritz, right, in that moment. Uh, And the form can seem like um, an obstacle rather than just a vehicle in that moment to send metta. 
Do you see? We make, a, we make a struggle out of actually nothing. In that moment, if I had been able to just stop and realize, instead of trying to do my benefactor, that I could do Fritz, it would have been much easier. There are times, you know, and depending on what we come into a retreat with, if it's been a very painful part of our life, then we will tend to come into a retreat and the heart will feel pretty locked up and tight and closed. If we are having an easier time in our outer life, it'll feel a little more malleable or flexible. So if you come in tight or if you feel like you're fine, if you feel numb, you feel it's okay, it's just tight. And if you can still imagine if the heart feels tight, um, just, it'll be fine. Again, you don't have to change parts of the body or change the way our heart feels to wish well. And that can be another obstacle to think that if only if this knot wasn't here in whatever way, then I could, then I could do loving-kindness practice. Uh, but if you feel like it's becoming predominant, again, you can open up and send metta to that knot itself. Or you can shift to a compassion, a more compassionate awareness, which is just caring about that pain. You can drop the phrases for a while, or do the phrases with a kind of compassionate feeling of just caring about it, not trying to get rid of it. Because that's really an aspect of of loving-kindness. And in terms of allowing whatever comes up and in, in when you touch into loving-kindness, you know, s- try not to second-guess this practice, because sometimes we might feel loving-kindness and just feel quiet. And there's no quality of what we would expect a loving experience to be. But that quiet is actually very deep. (laughs) You know, and we might just minimize that experience or negate it, and it's actually (laughs) um, a feeling of internet connectedness without a lot of the um, sukha or happiness with it, but it's a deep concentration. We might feel tears of gratitude, You know, when we finally do receive, you know, when we let go of control and receive, we often will cry because we have felt so tight, and it's a kind of relief to feel the loving-kindness. Sometimes we'll just feel a spaciousness, not a loving feeling, or joy. Um, So please be careful of knowing what will happen, that we'll be touched by loving-kindness and then anything can happen. And I, I mean that anything can happen, because sometimes we'll have the experience of loving-kindness, and then a whole lot of purification happens. Meaning that um, if there's moments of purity, it's like we've washed a dirty cloth in soapy water. So the loving-kindness is like washing our heart in soapy water. And sometimes, you know, difficult experiences might come up, like just plain old sadness or grief that we haven't been experiencing this that much. Um, But sometimes, 
you know, the judge will come out, you know, the real cruel judge on ourselves. Um, whatever it is, you know, this is part of this process. It is a path of purification. And we often think something's wrong when these things come up. And if they do, again, see if you can bring some loving kindness to them. If they're predominant, if you can't keep the loving kindness practice just going. And then um, try some compassion, just caring about it. And then you can just bring the mindfulness itself to it. If it's, if it's so strong, you can't ignore it. That's okay. Because we've been doing the benefactor today, I wanted to just touch into that um, because we've mainly been talking tonight about loving kindness as a protection, as a purification. Uh, but one of the um, doorways into interconnectedness in this practice and an ease and effortless in this practice is the connection to the benefactor. Uh, and in a way, if you look at who you've auditioned or who, if you've done this practice for a long time, who you've ended up with, it can be a real mirror for our own heart or our own mind. It's like we learn so much about ourselves just by who doesn't work out. <laughs> you know, if suddenly someone who you thought, you know, was a dear friend shifts to the difficult category pretty quickly, and it not that amazing? It's like in the, um, the passage I read last night where this 98-year-old lady remembered this man that yelled at her and her siblings for crossing the field in the summer. But in the snow, he rescued them. And there's two sides to this man, but she was saying that she was remembering and grateful for his goodness. And there's two sides to us. We all have, as human beings, a shadow and, and a very beautiful goodness. And in this practice, we're trying to tune into the goodness. The benefactor, it's supposed to be someone or some being that it's easier or the easiest for us to tune into that goodness. It doesn't mean that they don't have difficult sides. And if we try out someone that, that, that too much difficulty comes up, that's okay. You just try someone else out until you, you know, it doesn't mean that nothing will come up with somebody. Because if you spend enough time with somebody day after day in the metta practice, every little thing does come up in a way. I mean, I remember the first six weeks I did this practice and with the person I was doing, you know, every little nitpicky little thing that I never remembered came up when I did the practice uh, because it's a purification practice. When we see the power, whether you end up with a benefactor or dear friend, you'll find over time, you know, where it's easier. You'll see that that, that category really means that they're a lifeline for us. You know, any kind of spiritual friend, if you look over a lifetime, anyone that you really would call a spiritual friend is someone who's mirroring to us our deepest aspiration. And we know, you know, in a world, especially a more materialistic culture, where you don't always find your spiritual aspiration mirrored in fifth grade, 
right? I mean, you know, it was reducing fractions. You know, you didn't necessarily get that aspect of you mirrored, at least when I was in school <laughs> long ago, it was reducing fractions. Now it's probably physics or something. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really part of this practice is starting to value spiritual friendship. Recognize value because it actually brings about gratitude. Which is not always something we're accessing in our culture so much. It's only because we're not recognizing and valuing it. It takes time and space. So I find that if a person can truly find a dear friend or a benefactor that you can, you know, somewhat practice with, you're very lucky, very fortunate. Uh, And remember, you can call in, like I said this morning, call in a guardian spirit. You can call in everybody, Mary, Jesus, Buddha, Kuan Yin, you know, a bear spirit, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you find brings you you a sense of protection and safety. You know, that's where you start. And then you call in the benefactor where it's easy. And that's, you're meant to find connection rather than alienation. Connection rather than fear. This um, fall I went to my nephew's wedding and I had raised my sister's three kids when I was younger for quite a while and then at a certain point I realized I wanted to devote more of my life to this practice. And in some ways it was quite difficult to kind of wrench myself away from that, um, those relationships and it was gradual. But in a way I went too far um, and at the wedding I really realized how much I'd miss uh, these three children that I love so much and that I actually need, need that connection as well as them needing mine. Um, but I- they're so grateful to me, it's incredible. I mean, I, I do feel like they realized what I had done even when they were young. I mean, it was, there was never a sense that, oh, why did you put your energy somewhere else? Because they knew what I had done. And it was very pure. It was just easy and pure for me. Um, so it had been quite a while with my nephew, Tony, that I had really spent time with him. Uh, so this just a couple weeks ago, I stopped to see him where he lives in California, and he's married now. And it was so interesting. It was just like coming home. You know, it's like when we know someone that well, and they're, you know, we're so close, it's like I don't feel any separation. We're incredibly different. But we didn't have to do anything. It's like we didn't have to go here or go there. But just for a couple days, we just hung out. Um, And for me, it was like, you know, sometimes we have these connections, like with um, when I see a tree in blossom, like there's a peach tree in the backyard here. When it's in blossom, I'll have that sense of coming home. 
Or you know, when the other day I saw this baby porcupine and we looked at in each other's eyes and that there's that feeling of coming home. Uh, that's what this category is about. When you touch into that, that feeling essence of this person, you feel that sense of coming home. And it's meant to be like um, a, a lighthouse for us in, in this world, that this isn't something we're doing just for this retreat. It's like when we, five years from now, hopefully, when you need it, you call in the benefactor. Maybe the benefactor changes, but really it's a, gets, it's a sense of that ease and um, well-being that then you remember to bring to your present moment experience. The Buddha said that there's two types of rare and precious human beings in this world, a benefactor and one who's grateful for the benefactor. Two types of rare and precious human beings, someone who shows kindness, someone who receives it and appreciates it. And this doesn't have to be a long-term relationship. This 98-year-old woman who says, I can still taste the apple that this being gave me. You know, this is what this kindness is like. So I'd like to um, read a poem where Mary Oliver calls this unspeakable kindness. You know, it, it's that deep. There, there aren't words for it. Uh, but, but we have to remember that um, this is a lifeline for us, that loving kindness is a lifeline for us. Otherwise, the world is so um, void of moisture. It's like it's so hollow. Even our spiritual practice can be so hollow uh, without this loving kindness. So this is called... 100 white-sided dolphins on a summer day. I'm surrendering. Here we go. 100, <laughs> 100 white aging happens. 100 white-sided dolphins on a summer day. Fat, black, slick, galloping in the pitch of the waves in the pearly fields of the sea. They leap toward us. They rise, sparkling, and vanish, and rise, sparkling. They breathe little clouds of mist. They lift perpetual smiles. They slap their tails in the waves, grandmothers and grandfathers, enjoying the old jokes. They circle around us. They swim with us. A hundred white-sided dolphins on a summer day, each one as God himself, could not appear more acceptable a hundred times in a body blue and black, threading through the sea foam and lifting himself up from the open tents of the waves on his fishtail to look with the moon of his eye into my heart and find there pure, sudden, steep, sharp, painful gratitude that falls, I don't know, either unbearable tons or the pale, 
unbearable hand of salvation on my neck, lifting me from the boat's plain plank seat into the world's unspeakable kindness. It is my 63rd summer on earth, and for a moment I have almost vanished into the body of the dolphin, into the moon eye of God, into the white fan that lies at the bottom of the sea with everything that ever was or ever will be, supple, wild, rising on flank or fishtail, singing or whistling or breathing damply through blowhole at top of head. Then in our little boat, the dolphin suddenly gone, we sailed on through the brisk, cheerful day. So the metta practice brings us that hand that touches us with salvation. Let's sit for a minute.
is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, to live from that truth. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The one who knows honors the pleasures of life. That pleasure is different from happiness. Yes, there is pleasure, all different kinds of pleasure, you know, and we can turn our life so that we cease the limits of pleasure. It is what it is. I mean, pleasure is great. The Buddha said, if it were not for pleasure, being w what it is, being would not, beings would not get entangled in the world. Things are pleasant. The problem with pleasure is that it doesn't last. That pleasure is different from happiness. Yes, there is pleasure. All different kinds of pleasure. we can turn our life so that we get pleasure. But if we struggle to get it, you know, the right food and wine and travel and music and sex and more and more, you know, there's never enough of it not to really satisfy us because it's love that matters in the end of what we seek. Socrates, who was led a very frugal life, generosity of our heart. As Martin Luther King said, I still believe in standing up for the truth as the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, to live from that truth. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain.
believe in standing up for the truth as the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, to live from that truth. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. I still believe in standing up for the truth as the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, to live from that truth. The truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.